Hey there. Hello. What's going on? Not much. What you doing? Sitting here watching uh, America's Test Kitchen and drinking coffee. Nice. What are they doing on America's Test Kitchen? Uh, they're doing a pork roast, but it's a rerun. Mm. <laughs> it's a rerun? Yes, yeah, you know, like four times in the last week, and yet here I am watching it still. <laughs> okay. I wondered how you knew, that's all. Uh, they, it's, um, there's a PBS channel called Create, and they pretty much just show cooking shows and travel shows, and there really aren't enough of those shows to go around, so they tend to rerun a lot. Hmm. I see. But I love the show so much, I can watch it whenever it's on. It is very, very good show, for sure. <laughs> Hi, Ryan. Hello. Hello. Aw. Um, <laughs> I'm mopey tonight. I don't yeah. uh, all day long, and really for the past couple of days. But there's nothing to be done about it. So maybe, maybe you guys can help me snap out of it. <laughs> we'll try. I've been mopey all week, but I'm just going to pretend that uh, I'm not. How's that? <laughs> okay, we'll see how good an actor you are. <laughs> I mean, is anybody that, ever that not isn't Bradley mopey? Cooper? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's like an endless stream of mopey. <laughs> for me. Are all three of us kind of mopey tonight? <laughs> um, I don't know. For me, it's been months and months of it, it feels like. But just generally, uh, what got me down was I watched Sherlock with my daughter, which um, really got into it. There's only two seasons of it and three episodes per season, the BBC. And... Um, the last one, they kill off a really great character. I'm not going to say who, but... And that bummed me out. It's so stupid because, of course, the real sad thing was that Ebert died. And that is... Um, it's such a big thing that I don't quite know how to get my mind around it. Because it's not as if... It's not just someone who died. It's someone who... Um, you know, at a time when we're all so embedded with each other online and our experience is so shared and every breath we take is recorded and we know people in, in ways that we never have before in the in the past ever with Twitter and reading their reviews and, and especially since Ebert really opened up his life to us in the last few years of his life. Um, it just feels very strange to me, very bizarre like tonight i i linked to his to the wonder review which is the last review he's written will ever write and something i've been doing since the beginning of my website the one thing i used to do before i ever even wrote articles which when i first started i didn't all i did was link to reviews um i've been linking to his reviews for 15 years <laughs> and i just realized i'd link to the last one today the last one i will ever link to just will never happen again. I mean, you know, obviously millions and millions of years of evolution, we've been dealing with death. You know, we deal with it all the time in our lives. It's just that we're living our lives in a different way. And so now we're going to be looking at death in a different way. We're attached to so many more people than we used to be. We used to... Um death in a family or death of friends or or friends of friends used to hit us hard but but now we're hit hard by people that we will never that we never met and never would have met but we know sometimes better than the people we live next door to right i was struck um on facebook the outpouring of um 
emotion for the man. I mean, it's it's not surprising because I think it became clear in his later years, especially what a what a good soul that he was. But I follow a lot of um, a lot of internet film types um, on Facebook, and and I lost count of the number that had a letter from Roger at some point in their mm-hmm. their budding careers, a letter of encouragement that they kept and and meant something to them, and and sort of sort of fueled them as they went along and it just kind of I'm trying to think of another another person who ha- who has been responded to in that way I mean we've lost a lot of big people over the years but I, I can't recall people responding so personally as they are to this because he reached out to so many people personally like you say um, who else do we know who 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 was that generous with their time was that generous with their whole life it seemed like he I don't see how he ever slept he there was always something being posted on his blog. I know that he had um, t- Twitter uh, tweets like um, lined up to be posted when he was asleep, but it just there was always a steady stream of, of uh, communication from him. I, I was surprised to learn that he had mentored so many people and that he had mentored very, um, you know, in a, in a very focused manner, his, his stepdaughter, who wasn't even really his stepdaughter, but it was like the daughter of one of his girlfriends back in the seventies, and she's now a writer, I think, at the um, Tribune. But she had written, a, you know, a, be, a brief goodbye to him and said that you know he always sat her down and showed her all these you know really important movies to watch, even if she didn't know what they were, you know, Fellini and Kurosawa and. She said that throughout her life, he he just kept dogging her, you know, go to this college, do this, write, you know, write, continue to write. Like he he took a an active role, a fatherly and a mentor role in her life, you know, and, and that's just one tiny bit, tiny corner of the kind of stuff he did. I mean, the only other person I know who's sort of in this realm, and I don't even know it personally, but it's Dustin Hoffman. Uh, all the actors that I used to know, they would always say that everybody had a Dustin Hoffman story because he's sort of notorious for, you know, p- setting people up with their first interviews or seeing someone in a, in a supermarket and saying, you know, you'd be really good for this kind of movie. Here, call this number, you know. So every actor that I knew had at one point come in contact with Dustin Hoffman, and they all had stories, but... The difference between Ebert is that he was so close to us, all of us. I mean, not me personally, but he was just right there. You know, he was on Twitter. So you feel like you're interacting with him on a daily basis. You know, even if he's not writing specifically to you, you know, we all, all 300,000, I think, of his followers. Does he have, he has like 300,000 on Twitter. He did. Maybe 800,000. 800,000. Yeah. So 800,000 people that close with him, you know. Yeah, you know, you talked about the mentor relationship that he had with people that he actually knew, but I think that it transcended people that he knew. There were people that he didn't even know existed, including me, that he had an impact on. He was, when I was a, a, a much younger man and sort of discovering the power that was movies, it was him and Siskel that opened me to the idea that movies could be art. They weren't just something that you did on a Saturday night or they weren't just a fun thing. They were a thing to be talked about and to be thought about and and to to be argued about. And, um, you know, Kurosawa and, and Fellini and Bergman and all of the great foreign directors were names to me because of things that those guys said at a very formative time in my life. And I, 
the the impact of that goes far beyond you know any individual review that he wrote or you know anything anything of that nature it was they were huge at a time when the film critic profession wasn't going to be the same for very much longer really really that's so true and we should say at this point that um Ebert had a very small list of people he followed, and uh, at some point, Craig, he you tweeted something, or he he somehow became aware of you, and he, he actually started following you. I have no idea why to this day. We always see it as a very high honor, and I know there was a time where Craig was afraid to tweet because he didn't want to lose Ebert. <laughs> Craig, well, yeah, I, I'm looking at that right now. He he followed 255 people. Yeah. He had 840. 3,000 people following him, and he only followed 255 people back. And Craig, you're still one of the people. You're still one of the people he follows. I, mean, I was pretty I mean, convinced that he had unfollowed me at some point, but I was afraid to look. <laughs> I, I, I it's a high I, honor, I, I have to say. I think it's a really high honor to be among that. It absolutely is. I can't, I can't tell you how thrilling it was to me when I found out that that had happened. And, I, and like I said, I don't know why at the time. I don't know what it was. I contacted him to try and figure out, just kind of get a feeling for what it was that had gotten his attention, because obviously I would keep doing that every day and make more people famous to follow me. (laughs) But uh, he didn't, he never said what it was. So I just kind of had to chalk it up to the, uh, a random act of awesomeness. Did he ever write back? No. Because it sounds like people, he was the kind of guy that if I never, I only emailed him once and that was in 2006, just to kind of which I totally regret, of course, because my hideous, hideous temper, I couldn't uh, hold back after Crash won, and, and he was such a proponent for Crash. He loved it so much. You know, I, what I need to learn in life is how to tolerate other people's opinions, and so it's so <laughs> hard for me to do. But, you know, Ebert, really, he wiped up the floor with me. I, I've never had, <clears throat> to this day, and even, I can say this even before he got cancer, so I'm not saying it out of guilt, but, um, you know, I have rarely you know, swapped emails with someone that tough, that sharp, and and just able to cut me to the quick like that. It was pretty amazing. I wish I still had those emails, but I don't. I'm long since gone. But um, but I, I gained a new respect for him after that exchange. You know, he has a reputation as a writer, especially I think, and even even in his opinions, especially in his later years, for being being a little soft. I don't think it's. I don't think anybody would be surprised to hear somebody say that. But I don't think you can discount the his intelligence and his. And when I say intelligence, I don't just mean IQ. I mean just the volume of movies over the decades that he's absorbed and given serious thought to. I mean, it's hard to imagine. You know, I dabble in writing reviews, and I do consider it dabbling compared to what he did. Um, to, to to have it be a career for that long and and to be that persistent and consistent and to go to all the major film festivals every year and to always have something to say it it just after a certain point you you can't really even stand up to that you just have to sort of nod and appreciate it someone counted up i think they said that he wrote over seven thousand film reviews in his career wow I mean, I can't. Seven th- it's hard to imagine that there were even 7,000 movies in the past <laughs> since 1967, you know? And then I've, all written, the books. I've written three this year. I have 6,997 <laughs> to go, and I'll catch up to him. Oh, my God. But I think of all the books he wrote. I mean, he, this is a man who had a passion for 
not just film, but life. You know, I, I can't think of another critic, not not even the ones that I greatly admire their writing, their beautiful, beautiful film writing. I can't think of another critic who was as um, who did such full spectrum living and appreciating of life as Ebert. You know, he was curious about life. He wasn't intimidated by technology. He was into Twitter. He was into blogging. Um, he never stepped back from it. He doesn't do what a lot of the critics you see now. It says, well, what's this funny thing, Twitter? I think I'll tweet out my review. You know, like you see like one or two tweets from some of these great critics. They would never deign to use Twitter, you know, and they, they, they hate technology and they resist it. But he never did. And I loved his, um, his efforts to bring writers from all over the world to report on international cinema. He somehow never lost that curiosity childlike curiosity. I hate to use that word, but it's appropriate here because I think that um, Einstein is, is somebody who, who approached life that way. One of the most intelligent men in the world was quoted as saying, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. And that to me was Ebert's gift, was that he approached life as someone who, who had yet to learn. Um, I think that's what made him to me such a, a spectacular human being and somebody always worth paying attention to, even if you disagree with what he thought about movies, which I did all often, you know. So the other thing George, too is, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead, Craig. Unlike a lot of critics, he not only talked the talk, he walked the walk. I mean, you can say what you want about Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. He still wrote it and it still got made and he participated in the whole creative end of making a movie and that i don't think you can underestimate that either yeah he did so much more than just write film reviews too i really i i like i respect and admire his essays about life and about mortality more than i do his reviews as a matter of fact mm. and as he the, the older he got the more he expanded his range instead of limiting and narrowing his range as he got older like a lot of people will do he just broadened his his scope mm-hmm and he, he redefined, I think, um, he evolved when he saw that it was no longer just high. He still wrote the reviews because he had to for the Chicago Sun-Times, just put out his official review. But mm -hmm. he, um, he evolved uh, as he saw all these other critics, um, you know, start posting their own reviews. He had to evolve because he then became a different kind of writer, a different kind of film writer. It wasn't just about movies anymore. It was about, you know, his family and his childhood and his illness and his marriage and, you know, all the ways that, that um, his personal life affected his opinion on films. And he was always really honest about it, I thought. You know, he was really forthcoming about his prejudices. He's still, to this day, the only critic that I know of who changed his mind publicly about a movie and did it without shame. More than once. I can't think of examples offhand, but that happened more than once. And he would write reviews uh, for the newspaper, and then he would uh, rethink or reconsider them and, and rewrite them completely top to bottom and publish them. And uh, they might show up in a great one of his great movie volumes. Mm, yeah. He didn't seem like a guy who wrote out of vanity. He wrote because he loved something. Yeah. And that's the exact right attitude to have if you're if you do love something then of course you're going to admit when you were wrong about it it, it wasn't a matter of being right and wrong to him it was it was a matter about getting it right really right. in the end yeah and not not defend like I, the one i remember specifically was unforgiven and he changed his mind on that and and it wasn't like how you see now it wasn't you know i have to dig my heels in or you know of course we didn't have this active blogging community like we do now. So who knows 
how people would have treated him if he reevaluated. I reevaluated what I thought of Argo and I got completely shredded for it. <laughs> so I don't know if, if he would get away with that today in the same way. Um, it's maybe different because I think he, when you reevaluate a movie to, to, to sort of realign yourself more with the oh, consensus opinion, it's a different thing than reevaluating a movie and thinking less of it. Right. You know, that's what that's what happened with me with Avatar and with you, too, with Avatar is we were really excited about it the first night we saw it. And then the farther we got away from it, the less we liked it. And we took a lot of flack for that, too. But I think he his when he reevaluated a movie, I think it was usually to upgrade his opinion. Absolutely. Yeah. He's he's better than than I am. He <laughs> he's a better person because you're <laughs> right. He would feel like that was needlessly shitting on something for for a pointless reason. But it was worth it to say, I think it's a better movie. And people will never mm. really give you flack if you do that, if you think it's right. a better movie. Yeah. But they do give you flack if you downgrade your opinion, which, you know, he's – I mean, I shouldn't have done that, but whatever. In the context that you did it in, it was perfectly valid because you were discussing – you were involved in, in in the Oscar thing. And that it was a perfectly valid thing, I think. I, I wouldn't discount what your your change of heart on that was, even if you took a lot of shit for it. But the thing about Ebert, too, is that a lot of critics and a lot of people online, I've noticed, too, are they tend to treat film criticism as sort of like this shield that you hold up. And here's the list of my tastes, and I'm being better than you by liking all of these things. And you're you're trying to uh, almost use it as a weapon. But with him, it always felt like he was trying to lift something up for people to see it and and to celebrate it and not necessarily to be a gatekeeper or something like that right or to redefine who he is like there's a certain major film critic right now who i think is a really good writer probably one of the best if not the best and i feel like um her opinions lately are sort of just deliberately contrary. And you can never really prove that. You can only go by having read them for years and years and knowing sort of what they're like as writers. But, you know, a couple of different recent takes on movies have made me think, you know, that's funny. I don't think she's using film criticism um, in the right way. That's just my dumb opinion. But, I, you know, to me it seemed like it was sort of like you're saying, like, this is my badge of honor. This is who I am. I'm I'm sticking behind this movie because this is what it says about me. Right. I think as film criticism crumbles as a profession, I think that's getting more and more common. I think they're getting defensive about it. And that's the wonderful thing about Ebert is he, well, like I said, he and Siskel were, were among the last of that generation of big-time major universally known critics but he seemed to see the writing on the wall before everybody else did and managed to shift gears as they're no longer gatekeepers because the the walls have been torn down and it's just this internet free-for-all of opinion and he understood that and he took advantage of that and he used that and he and he completely changed his his output and and his format and everything that he did he was still the same guy he still had the same beliefs and ideas and opinions but he just i don't know it was very uh very martial arts maneuver to just to kind of sidestep and and to continue on but be continuing on completely differently and still be the best like he yeah. didn't have to be the best by writing the best reviews he he was the best by rewriting the rules of what a film critic could do and could be online 
which he did. He rewrote the rules, and he was such an engaging writer. He drew such a strong community around his blog. And some of those people that wrote comments on there, they, they've been writing com- – they hung out there. I mean, you know, and they'd write these – he'd call them out and say what great comments they were and how invested the readers were and, and what he had to say. He'd get like 300, 400, 500 comments on articles he'd write, you know. A thousand sometime. Um yeah. As far as being universally known, as far as rewriting the rules, he did that as far back as his television show. And you can say universally known. We, we, we all know Pauline Kael or Andrew Saris, but nobody was ever as well known as Roger Ebert. Mm. People who didn't know any other film critic at all knew Roger Ebert because he came into their homes through the television set. If, they, if people didn't know and never knew anything about film criticism, criticism at all, they knew Roger Ebert. And... Um, he was, he became a celebrity more than just a writer. And I think he must have, he, obviously he really enjoyed it because he kept doing it and he kept expanding his audience like that. But there was nobody who had the, the brand name recognition that Roger Ebert had right. ever. It's interesting you brought that up though, because there's a danger to that, to the film critic as celebrity. And I think he's probably fairly taken criticism over the years that both he and Siskel were perceived in a lot of, by a lot of people as, as sort of cheapening film criticism by sort of reducing it to this up or down opinion of film. And I, I think there's, there's some rightness to that, but I think also that is, is not being critical enough of, of the audience. I don't think it's their fault that people use that as a shorthand to, shorten conversations about film i think a smart person would look at that and and use it as a springboard for conversation and not the end all be all so i i i sort of understand the criticism but i kind of think it's it's more the people's fault than it was theirs well that that's makes a, any sense. what you said what you, yeah it does make sense but like you said a smart person would know better it's just too bad there aren't more smart people <laughs> because yes, i mean i mean it because you know he can give he can uh, they could give thumbs down to a movie and that would that would be the death knell for that movie it would it could really hurt that film yeah uh, they could also i think more than more than just the fact that they would they would give an up or down negative positive review of a movie just to sum it up with a gesture like that just the fact that you would try to discuss a movie by sort of bickering about it for 5 minutes is not really the best way to analyze or uh, show for film, I don't think. I agree, so I th- and I, I don't think. I'm sorry. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. That's okay. I just I was just going to I was just going to wrap up and say that I think if anything that that helped to degrade film criticism, if it was the fact of of, of uh, film criticism as a soundbite. That's true. I I agree with that. Um, I started um, my website watching film critics before the kind of explosion of film criticism online into what it is now, before Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News even, before the fanboy, believe it or not. But mm-hmm. um, And I remember when it was, you know, I had to report on that. Um, uh, when did Siskel die? I'm pretty sure that I was blogging at the time that he died already. So I would have known that... Um, that, uh, you know, reported on whether they were giving two thumbs up. And I remember it being like if it was two weeks early. I know that that he kept Siskel and Ebert going for a long time after Gene Siskel died because he had a lot of different – he had Richard Roper and he had some guest hosts, you know, David Poland and Kim Morgan and A.O. Scott. And he tried to keep it Chris, – Christy Lemire. He tried to keep it going for a long time. Um, so I think I remember that when it was Siskel and Ebert and then when it transitioned – um, I think that if he had stayed in that mode, 
I don't think he would have been as influential, as powerful, and as big as he is today, the day he, you know, the moment he died. I think that he, his evolution, his cancer, if you will, his being forced out of that mode of thumbs up, thumbs down, um, forced him into a deeper analysis of film and, and in, I think a more interesting and useful um, persona emerged. Um, as far as the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, hell, that's child's play compared to what we see now. <laughs> I mean, yeah. What what yeah. film criticism has been reduced to now is horrifying. Um, so I would take the, the simplicity of those days uh, over anything. But what, what they did do was they were part of um, this, this you know, anyone can cook movement, which wasn't just film criticism, but it's everything. When reality TV came in, American Idol, all the American Idols started to become famous. And, you know, anybody could blog. Somebody like me could be a faux journalist, you know, and all these, you know, film critics from out of nowhere. Um, I think that they contributed to that because they made it so accessible. They, anybody look, would watch Siskel and Eber and go, I could do that. You know, I can watch that movie. I could do that. Whereas with some of the other film critics, you read their reviews and you think, wow, I could like Richard Brody of The New Yorker. When I read his stuff, it's like, oh, my God, that's like a whole different level of thinking. That's another reason for his popularity and for his widespread, uh, for his mass audience, his mass appeal, too, is because he wrote on a level that wasn't too intellectual. You can never right. accuse him of being too intellectual. He was he could have insight without being without saying sounding like a brainiac. And he didn't want to. You no, know? he didn't want to. He was so, wasn't his style. He was very charismatic, which is why he was so great on TV. I mean, you guys mm -hmm. all remember when he would go on Letterman and you know Jay Leno or whatever. He he was just he was a TV personality. The whole thumbs up, thumbs down was a meme before there were memes. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it eventually just kind of died out. Nobody does thumbs up, thumbs down anymore. But um, but we do we do Rotten Tomatoes. We do that, yeah. There's Fresh and Rotten, which is the next, uh, which is the ancestor of thumbs up and thumbs down. That's a kind of film criticism that I really abhor. I really don't like at all. But and, and but they, I can't say that I blame them for it. They didn't realize what they didn't realize what it would what it would uh, ex expand into to become. They didn't realize what monsters they created and how stupid <laughs> right. people are. Right, because it was just a cute gimmick. It was. Just just a cute, uh, it was just a cute um, little gesture that they that they would, and it and it was useful. I mean, I'm sure that it helped as many movies as it hurt, but it just, I just, I, I just feel like a lot of people who didn't, who, who never read a, a newspaper review in their life would watch those reviews and it would turn them off of some movies if they got a, thumb a thumbs down, some really um, worthy movies probably. Right. But now I feel like we have people who are unqualified to be writing reviews. <laughs> Absolutely. Telling wonder, us yeah. that these movies are <laughs> shitty, you know, and that's a drag. I mean, at least with Eber and, and Siskel, you kind of, I didn't agree with them all the time. And I honestly, I would take what they said with a grain of salt. In terms of Oscar watching, I would always count it as a good thing if they gave it a thumbs up. But for my personal taste, I would always not, I wouldn't do exactly as they said. Um, but I watch these these film critics tear apart movies like Cloud Atlas or whatever, you know, that are so good. And, and then the movie doesn't have a chance mm -hmm. if it doesn't have the critics. You know, some movies, obviously some movies are critic proof. It doesn't matter. They're still going to make a lot of money. But. I will say too the fact the fact that some people in the seventies and eighties only knew 
the only film critic I knew was Roger Ebert. Even as even as recently as last year, sometimes the only critic people would turn to as the as their ultimate authority would be Roger Ebert. And if if he didn't give a movie four stars, its picture its chances for best picture nomination were pretty much sunk. If you if he didn't give you, if your movie didn't get four stars, it was in trouble as far as the Oscars go. Yeah, but it was funny because something happened um, after he got sick. He started giving everything four stars, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> his, his opinion didn't matter. Well, yeah, matter. something happened. I, I hate to be crass, and I'm sure this is this is not the only reason. But he started publishing his books, uh, the great movies, and you're not going to have great movies that that are three star movies. You have in order to fill those books, you have to have a certain number of four star movies. Hmm, interesting. That's my, that's my little theory. I don't. I don't mean. To, I mean. I don't mean that in a mean spirited way at all. But I mean. I think that he started to be more generous to more movies because he realized that they would look good in a book collection. But I also, yeah. That I mean, that might, may or may not be true. I have no idea. But I also think that at some point he caught on to how people thought of him, and he changed, mm-hmm. and that was interesting. You know, I think he he started being a little more critical of movies, and mm-hmm. like giving me giving um, Ava DuVernay's Middle of Nowhere three stars, for instance. That just seemed petty to me. <laughs> yes, it hurts so much because, you, and sometimes if he would give a movie three and a half stars, what's, what, what, what caused him to subtract a half a star would sometimes just be so painful and difficult for me to understand. I couldn't, I didn't know why he would want to, because it seems so damaging. Because if you don't get those four stars, three and a half stars just does not look the same on a poster. I really hope uh, there there are collections of his reviews. I really hope that there are plans to collect some of his um, best essays too, because those really mean so much more more to me than his reviews do. They're 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 to me they're they're just a lot more meaningful. Well, it's so strange because every once somebody dies online now, you know, and you know this from Facebook and Twitter and everywhere else, you see them. You know, they their vibrations continue. Every little tiny tweet suddenly means more. Every Facebook status update, every photo posted, you know, it all means so much more. It's suddenly part of their living memorial. And that is something we've never had in all of history. Think about it. A living memorial, like all of our lives, you know, my life on Facebook, all the photos I post, all the little snapshots from my daily life are there, you know, for my daughter to go back and visit after I die, you know. Mm. So a lot of people can go and visit Ebert online. He's everywhere. And that's a great thing. It's not. It reminds me of uh, one of his one of Ebert's favorite movies, Citizen Kane, where at the end of Kane's life, his entire life is boxed up in crates in a warehouse, and some of it even thrown into a furnace and never to be seen again. And it's just the opposite now. If you if you're online, all, your 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 photo albums and your diaries are online for as long as the internet exists. Yeah, and isn't it great that he made his life so personal, you know, his stories and his writings so personal so that we really did get a chance to know him. Lesson for all of us. And I mean, there are people, I mean, I'm, I'm like this. If I, if I have a bad hair day or, or I don't have a, a clean, a, a, my favorite shirt is not clean or something, I won't go out. But I mean, he had such a lack, such an absence of, of vanity and pride that he still wanted to make appearances and, and do as much in public as he could, even as, as, as uh, difficult as it must have as he must have known it was for people to, to deal with the way that he, that he was declining and looking. Yeah. His appearance. Right. I know. Mean, I saw him in Cannes um, 
not last year. He didn't go, but the year before. And I saw him walking around with Chaz, you know, and they were just so happy to be there. Mm. Just made you feel so ashamed of yourself. Big, horrible, bitter. Everyone should just be happy all the time if we can be happy in the face of all the the hardship and pain and difficulty. I know, walking around smiling, you know, with no jaw Mm. and an inability to speak or eat. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just incredible to me. There he was in Cannes going to see movies, you know, and and everybody would pass, hi, Roger. You know, everybody said hello to him. Everybody loved him so much, you know. Just a lot of people faced with that level of adversity would have just become shut-ins. But there he was with the woman he loved in the place that he loved, doing the thing that he loved up until the very end for the most part. Mm. I really amazing. am. We're so glad. I'm so grateful that Jazz uh, posted a, a short message to the people who had been offering condolences to let us know that his last moments, he was getting, he was in the hospital getting ready to come home. And the last thing that he did was, was smile as if everything's okay and then he was gone. Oh God! Oh. Why is life so horrible? Just I have we have to take his um, take a lesson from him though a page from his book and just you know live our lives, get busy living or get busy dying. You know that's the thing is this is if you're a a, a godless communist like me, this is the one shot you've got, <laughs> and you can bitch and moan about how horrible things are. But if you're going to do that, you might as well just check out right now because mm-hmm. this is the one shot you've got and you need to make the most of it. And it's, I'm shocked and horrified how often I realize that I haven't done that. And I just hope that I, that I, that there's still enough time left that I can still, you know, yeah. I can make up for lost time and, and, and really say when the time comes, yeah, I gave it my best shot. Right. And for me to sit there and just freak out about my age and, and you know, um, just being thinking, oh, my God, I'm 48. It's all over now. You know, that's it. No more no more fun. No more being the pretty girl, you know, <laughs> if I ever was. But, you know, th- that just makes that thought makes me ashamed after seeing how Ebert, what he did with his life after he got cancer. Instead of letting it shame you, let it inspire you. That's what I'm trying to do. Instead of feeling bad for what I haven't done, I'm trying to make me feel good for what I could do. And you should do the same. And even when, even though it's hard to see someone um, pass away when you know that they really should have had another 10 or 15 or 20 years, I that's that's really difficult and that could happen to any of us at, uh, tomorrow. But at the same time, I also like to think there's also the possibility that we could live to be 110. Mm-hmm. So we could still have half our life, you know, had ahead of us, you know. Yeah, I know. I, yeah, I will try to remember him every day of my life if I can when I wake up in the morning to try to do, to try to do with my life even a tiny fraction of what he did with his, and touch that many people. You know, I my own the only sad thing about it is he didn't live to see this. You know, I wish he could have seen this tribute. I wish he could have seen how many people's lives he touched and how they reacted when he died. I hope he knew. I hope he was smart enough to know that. I think he knew. He strikes me as a as a cat who knew that he was a good soul and you can't you know, he didn't seem to have a, at least his his persona was he didn't seem to have a, a a super negative bone in his body and I think that people who think that way just sort of know. And he knew he had 843,000 followers on Twitter. You know things like that. You know that people love you. Right. Mm -hmm. 
God, that's a lot. You know, when he, <laughs> I watched his followers, I stopped checking his followers when he got to 150,000. <laughs> and he went all the way up to 800. He never stopped gaining followers. I know, and his, like, his clout score was like 99 or something. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> 800,000, and I can think of thousands of times where you say something and you think it's the smartest thing ever, and it's on Twitter, and it just gets no response whatsoever. You just hear crickets chirping, and it's like, even no matter how many followers you have, you realize nobody gives a shit. And yet here he was, just surrounded by people who lived for every 140 characters that he would say well because remember he started out being a really heavy tweeter and then either someone joked about it or he got sick or i can't remember what happened why he stopped but he he went from being a major major tweeter to cutting it back i think someone people were commenting about how much he tweeted that's in my weird cra crazy warped mind that's how i see it anyway um, well he, i think he gave he, he's written whole posts about how to be a good a good tweeter or a bad tweeter and i think he gave it a lot of thought and i think he realized that he wasn't doing himself any favors by doing it constantly and that he was sort of um he was sort of clouding his brand and to step back a little bit just made the individual ones more interesting hmm. meanwhile Tweets are not something that archive really well either. It's hard to sit down and, and read thirty-one thousand tweets, but you can see his time is better spent writing essays and, right. and reviews that can that can be appreciated in long form. And he probably realized that at some point. And I was going to say, meanwhile, Kim Kardashian has seventeen thousand Twitter followers. I mean, seventeen really? million. Seventeen million. Oh. Seventeen million. Twitter yeah. Followers. Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different type a different type of people. I doubt if they have very many of the same followers. <laughs> can you believe that? <laughs> oh, God. I, I can believe that, and it, and it makes me stick to my stomach. <laughs> no, I doubt if, if if a dozen people who follow Kim Kardashian are following followed Roger Ebert. <laughs> it's like, here's a picture of my baby bump. <laughs> just 17 million people. What is there's wrong just, with that? There's us? more of those types of people out there than there are people who who can who can who can appreciate Roger Ebert. <laughs> can you believe this? <laughs> to me, that's just insanity. It's insanity. It's like that's the weird thing about this modern life and the internet is that you know, on the one hand, you can have Ebert and all that he contributed, and then you have Kim Kardashian. Maybe she has the most Twitter followers of anybody. She might be number one. By now. I think maybe Lady Gaga does. Not, I think I heard that once, but I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I can't imagine anyone having more than 17 million. That just, I don't know, that doesn't even sound right. I just can't even imagine that. That's inconceivable. <laughs> That's inconceivable in a sane world. In a sane world. <laughs> it's also, I just wanted to say um, that one thing, another thing that Ebert did that you know, kind of led the way for other people was was his involvement with film festivals, specifically Cannes. Um, I know Jeff Wells was one of the major, you know, film bloggers or Oscar bloggers or whatever to, to start going to Cannes. And after he started going, everybody else started going. But Ebert has always gone, you know, since back in the day. And he he not only went to Cannes, he went to uh, Telluride and Toronto. I mean, nothing was going to stop him until it stopped him, you know. And then he even created Ebert Fest. Um, you know, in, it's in Chicago, right? That's where mm -hmm. it, it takes place. And so he even created his own film festival. That's how much he was into it. It wasn't. It was like a full time, full, all year round passion. And he was really lucky to be doing something he loved. You know. 
I never went to Ebert Fest, but I know people who did. And wasn't the original uh, wasn't the original conception of that festival sort of a here's a bunch of films that I think are awesome that kind of got overlooked type of thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like, he would have like, like it's called the Forgotten Film Festival or something like that. Right, and he would have people who participated in making those films as guests, and they would be on stage, and they would have like a panel thing either before or after, and they would do sometimes pretty in depth in depth analysis of the films that the, these lost or uh, underappreciated uh, masterpieces that he wanted to to bring back to the public eye. How awesome is that? I mean, most film festivals are scrambling to get these high profile pictures that they're going to get everybody's attention. And here he was trying to cast his spotlight on things that he felt were deserving that weren't getting the attention that they, they should have been getting. Yeah. It's it's totally different than what the whole film festival attitude is. And I noticed it a lot with, with the little local film festivals here, the LA film fest and AFI, they almost embarrassed themselves by, you know, just reaching for whatever's biggest, just just so they can get attention for it. And you understand it because that's what sells tickets and that's what gets people talking. But they always end up with like one year it was the Transformers and there's just been other years when there's been these other odd things that didn't really fit in with the rest of the festival but were high profile and therefore conversational. But he wasn't about that at all. It was all about the movies. Yeah, it's called, um, it was originally known as Roger Ebert's Overlooked Film Festival, and then it became known as Ebert Fest, and it says, unlike typical film festivals, Ebert Fest does not accept submission, did not accept submissions, or maybe it's going to still go on, I don't know. Um, But he wanted to pick films that have been overlooked by the public or by film distribution companies, Um, all films that are selected uh, from those that Ebert sees in the course of his normal reviewing work. And some of the past films that they've shown there, Joe versus the Volcano, um, The Truth About Beauty and Blogs, which I've still never heard of, Funny Business, a black comedy, still haven't heard of it, Big Fan, uh, some ones we have heard of would be um, A Separation, Take Shelter, and Tiny Furniture, um, I am love. I remember he was a big uh, promoter of I, I am love. He advocated hard for that movie. And Tim Blake Nelson's Leaves of Grass is another one. Um, me and Orson Welles, Richard Linklater. These are just movies that he he singled out that were selected there. So they're not always t- totally unknown or obscure movies, but they're movies that he did he feels were undervalued and underappreciated that he wanted to have people take a second look at. Yeah, looks and like and also he had uh, favorites that he. I'm sure that one of the reasons he liked I Am Love is because he really liked Tilda Swinton. Every year that she was in a movie, he was he wanted to um, boost her for her best actress. Like the three years in a row, he did that. Yeah, no, he totally did. <clears throat> it's kind of one other thing that that you know I tried to talk about a little bit uh, in the thing I had to write for IndieWire, but. A remembrance of him, but but you know he was also the one who really kind of opened up the the idea of advocating, um, especially for African American film. You know, and he got a lot of flack for that. You know, oh, it's a black movie, so of course Ebert's going to like it. But you know, in and I I was guilty of thinking that. But in my uh, and in fact accused him of that when Crash won. I don't know if I directly accused him. I hope I didn't. God. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but you know, over the years, I came to to really value that, and I definitely changed my own coverage to reflect that because I think it's important for people in the mainstream media. You know, we pretty much only focus on, you know, straight white people stories. You know, and and it takes someone like Ebert to really advocate to to open those doors. Ebert was the first film critic who was accessible enough to me, who I who I who I became aware of early enough when I was. 14 years old, he was like my first film teacher. I, I learned so much about movies and about old movies from him and from his reviews before I, before I was even able to take a, a film class, you know? And yeah. so he, he's in, far back in my life, he's so important to me, such an important influence on me. And, and that's so true. I, I think that one thing that I've, I've often appreciated about Ebert, he, yes, he doesn't, he didn't get everything quote unquote right, but on a lot of times he was on the right side of film history. Like he definitely defended, um, taxi driver to Siskel. And he said, it sounds like you wanted Scorsese to make, you know, a different movie and you're not willing to appreciate that. And he, you know, obviously loved Raging Bull. I think that Ebert more than many of them kind of knew a good thing when he saw it. And he saw mm-hmm. the long view. He saw the long view, yeah. Did you? Did either of you read um, what Scorsese said about Ebert? No. He's making a documentary about him, though, isn't he? Is he? I didn't know that. Yeah, he, he just is. He talked about what, what Ebert meant to him throughout his career as a, as a critic, but also as a friend, and he did consider him a friend, even though they weren't necessarily close. He said he had a relationship different with Ebert than any, than any other critic. It was a much closer, more more friendly relationship and that mm. he felt like Ebert was there for him in the darkest points of his career. And, and that meant a lot to him. I mean, to hear yeah. Scorsese say something like that, that's pretty much, that closes the book on it right there. That does. That's heavy. I wish that, that Ebert had heard that. If nothing else, that would be something that would make him feel very, very satisfied, I think on his career. But I, he was, he was very, he's very, different than most critics who kind of, I would say the closest to him in that way is, is maybe um, Todd McCarthy, who definitely forges bonds with filmmakers. And, and, you know, once you're loyal, once you, they have your loyalty, you know, even if, even if um, Ebert didn't like a Scorsese movie, he would still, because he knew his work and he knew the importance of the filmmaker, he would never just outright trash it. You know, he would consider the intent and what Scorsese was going for, you know. And he is one of the main critics who who championed Taxi Driver early on and Raging Bull. And, you know, that's pretty amazing. It is amazing. He was so ahead of his time. I'm just looking right now. I, I had read this earlier this week, too, and, and, and I wanted to confirm my source, and so I checked it real quick online. Uh, when Dawn of the Dead came out in 1979, people thought it was just grotesque. People had never seen anything so gory and violent. Critics, of course, didn't didn't have any respect for horror films at all back then. But uh, Ebert gave Dawn of the Dead four stars in 1979. Wow. And he was kind of right, too. He didn't the have movie any... movie has had lasting impact. He was oh, wait a minute. It might be Night of, the, Night of the Living Dead in 1967, which is even more extraordinary. Night of the Living Dead in 1967, Ebert gave that four stars. Yeah. That was the thing about him is he got stuff like that. You know, he was yeah. plugged mm-hmm. into pop culture, too. Somebody wrote about him. One critic, a kind of a, I thought it was a kind of a snooty piece on Ebert, actually. It was, it was sort of like, you know, a backhanded compliment. But they called him like the, the original fanboy. 
And I think that it's partly true in in that he was enthusiastic about movies like that and he wasn't a genre snob at all. He got it. He got why that was a good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that he uh, he was critical when he needed to be and that's something the fanboys tend not to be is, is very critical. Yeah, and he wasn't just sucking up to his favorite directors that he wanted to rub elbows with. Right. I I would take away all of the the negative, and Lord knows there's a lot of negative connotations of fanboy, and I would just keep the positive ones, which are the enthusiasm, a certain certain youthful optimism, and a, a willingness to sort of tread in some of the lesser respected genres. Yeah, but he got the the things that made certain directors great. He got the myth making, um, which was you know very like the Cahiers du cinéma. Cahiers du cinéma. <laughs> you know the Cahiers. You know the you know that that idea of he got that. You know he was one of the again one of the few early critics that did. I think that's another reason why people relate to him is because you know the public are into that more than critics tend to be. Critics can be so cold with their emotions, you know. Um, They're trying to to seem objective, which is ridiculous. You can't be objective when you're you're analyzing art, which is what movies are. You have to to be aware that you're bringing your own personal things into it, and it's an opinion. It's not right or wrong, and it's not a provable fact. It's just what you think, and... He seemed to understand that better than a lot of people who are so desperate to be taken seriously. He actually Another thing he a... never did, he never pandered, even though he knew he certainly had a sense of what people wanted to see him uh, um, praise and, and support. He never pandered to that. He did. He didn't. He knew exactly what people wanted to read, but he didn't always give it to them. And he he actually made yeah. And he had a quote about that. He said that he thought that if anybody wasn't writing a subjective review, that there was something untrue about it or something false about it. And then he said that, the, you know, these are really your opinions. This is your subjective reaction to something. So uh, whenever you read reviews that are supposedly not subjective, they're, they're acting as though there is one general way to, to you know, review this movie, kind of like you're driving a car and the brakes don't work or whatever, you know. It's... Um, it's that attitude that breeds the sort of the digging in of the heels when somebody comes out with an opinion and then just sticks to it relentlessly and refuses to budge on it. And that sort of we've already established that he wasn't that guy and that sort of that whole attitude about it not being a matter of right or wrong um, sort of sort of reinforces that. There's a great Rilke quote, um, Rilke, you know, Rainier Maria Rilke. <laughs> Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to butcher the name Rilke, Rilke, whatever. Um, you know, if if your own life seems poor, do not blame it. Blame yourself. Call yourself not poet enough to call forth its riches. And I always think about that with Ebert. Like he was poet enough, you know, and a lot of people aren't. And so they 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 want to blame the work rather than take a look in their own heart or in their own head or in their own soul, you know, to see why maybe they didn't respond to, to something or, or open that door and let it in, you know. Ebert just didn't know how to end a movie review. <laughs> <laughs> I had issues with all of Ebert's reviews. Yeah, it wasn't perfect. <laughs> it wasn't perfect. <laughs> you know, it was flawed. It was a greatly flawed 
good attempt or whatever. I hate when they say that. It was a great attempt, but it was flawed. I hate that word so much. Even though I use it and I understand why people have to say it, but I just it just bugs me so much. It's it's just like Ryan was saying, like you look at paintings and you're gonna go, Oh, the Mona Lisa's flawed because it's, you know, dark on the side. That's some guy on IndieWire just wrote a whole essay about how flawed no country was. It was narrative. It was, what did he say? It was structurally flawed or something. And I just wrote, Yikes. that applies hey. that the movie has any flaws at all to begin with. It's not a goddamn <laughs> snowflake, you asshole. It's a movie for Christ's sake. <laughs> Jesus. I know. I got so mad. And then the next one was about the big Lebowski and how bad that movie was. I was just horrified. I was like, oh God, please make it stop. Make it stop. <laughs> oh dear. Everybody's a fucking expert. And they're all idiots. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a problem because these movies, they don't, they come out, they don't make money. Although I guess as you're saying about rules of the game, you know, there's nothing new about this. This has been going on since film and art, really. Think of all the paintings that were trashed before they became classics. Mm-hmm. And and the, and the, I think I, another thing I read recently is that Picasso. This might be a Picasso quote. He he said that if he had painted his, if he his career had happened twenty years sooner or twenty years later, nobody would have appreciated him. Mm. It was only in the context of his time and in the context of what else was happening in the art world that people were able to recognize and understand what he was trying to do. So he just came, he felt like he came along at just the right time. It's possible. I don't know about that, though. His paintings yeah. are so amazing. It's strange but, that he would be. He, he does. He's not, not usually that modest. I've never. That's the most right. modest Picasso quote I've ever read. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I say, I know what he means because he did. He was a rule breaker, I guess. But um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's I maybe just, what he meant is that he would that it, 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 they wouldn't have understood what he was doing if they didn't know what had happened five years earlier. Mm, yeah, possibly that's what he meant. Right, because in some ways he was like kicking down the door of what came. Mm-hmm. No, I've been trying to find. I think it might have been in, in Roger Ebert's memoir, um, "Life Itself," which is a fantastic title. Oh my god, what a great title for for a, a biography! "Life Itself." Um, I I think that it was either on the on the the back cover of the jacket or within the book someplace. Have you seen the picture of Roger Ebert as a little boy reading a book? Mm, I think so. I think it's I adorable, it. isn't it? Because yeah. it even shows even even when he was like barely big enough to hold a book, he was reading a book. Yeah. Well, he says on that on that Fresh Air that he started reading when he was six, and his he he actually had wanted to be a um, a novelist. He wanted to be like Thomas Wolfe, and uh, he just happened to get a job in his early twenties at the Chicago Tribune writing movie reviews, but he hadn't really wanted to do that. He, he wanted to be, you know, well-known as a writer. Um, and he, his famous quote, or it's a great quote, actually, he said, I thought that if I could write like, probably from that book, actually, if I could write like Thomas Wolfe, I would have nothing left to learn. Mm. But, um, yeah, he never went into fiction. He never did. He just turned it all into his film stuff. So now he's went to the wonder. To the wonder. That's right. I, I did. I feel like almost now that when you read, when you go back and read the the, the his blog post about that he was taking a leave of presence. Certainly, he must have realized that if he was going into the hospital for some for a, 
um, some major treatment that uh, things were pretty dire. And at this at that point, you don't know really how much time you might have left. There were so many phrases I believe point, planted in that last blog post where he was in a way possibly saying goodbye just in case. The way he ended it, see it you with the movie. Like it, yeah. you know, it was. It definitely seemed like that to me too when he wrote that. It sounded like that was because with cancer, I guess you never know. Maybe the doctor told him, you know, you might not, you know, you might not live through this. Mm-hmm. He's in the industry now. I mean, it's so great. Like you said, not only that the fact that he's left such a legacy online, but there will be there will continue. Ebert Fest will continue, probably with the same name, but with different different hosts. And um, I really hope that someone um, starts collecting some of his best essays in book form. And so it's going to be like an industry, a money making industry for for years and years in the future. Did yeah. you say that his his great movies essays that he's been doing online for years have been turned into books? I was not even aware of that. If that's the case, there are three volumes in his great movies uh, series, and he was working on a fourth book that that um, I, that's not published yet. Okay, because those were some of my favorite things that he's done movie wise. Um, in fact, after I stopped watching the show and reading his current reviews that much. I was still wading through all of his his essays on a lot of the great films that are all approachable yet still intelligent. Mm-hmm. I like those re- those reviews too because there's more they're more analytical, and you can t- of course he he was able to spend more time on them. He right. was able to um, to give them more thought, and they're just a lot. They seem just a lot richer than his weekly reviews. Are because of the time constraint of, of doing a time constraint of doing re- weekly reviews is a, a lot of pressure. That and the passion level of of just approaching something that you're already excited about. Whereas the average movie, I mean, let's face it, most movies that come out each week are, for the most part, fairly average. You know, it's it's only once in a in a while that something really great comes out. But when you're just reviewing just the ones that you already think are great, that's got to be really exciting. Mm-hmm. And that's something you notice about his writing too. The better the movie, the better the review. The, yeah, the better the more he reviews it, he the more he it. puts into it. He could snark as good as anybody, but yeah, mm-hmm. his, his the movies that he was excited about were were the more fruitful ones. I know. Talking about snarking, one of his one of his older books is called "Your Movie Sucks." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was he was great with that. He had all those. Um, you know those those tropes. He would he listed all the movie tropes, the bad movie tropes that people mm-hmm. relied too much on. You know, what was that? I, I can't remember. He's been around for so long. He's been writing books for so long. His career has taken so many different turns. Uh, it's hard to even remember back. But it's sad. We didn't mention. Um his awesome commentary track on Citizen Kane, and he did others too, didn't he? Right, I tweeted something about that, and now I've forgotten the titles. I know he, he liked Dark City a lot. I know he did Dark City. Oh, that's another well-known. Citizen Kane and Casablanca. He did uh, the commentary track. Those right. are absolutely, I think I tweeted something like those. Those are tw- treasures that he left behind for us, like he bequeathed to us that we, mm. we inherited from him. To hear To hear his voice for two hours straight, um, sitting next to you watching a movie with you is an, an incredible gift to still have that. I would love to hear the Citizen Kane one. I think the only person 
in his league would be Martin Scorsese's commentaries, which are just incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm Marty gonna... tends to ramble a little bit because he gets ahead of himself and he gets so excited and he he talks really fast and he's going a mile a minute, whereas whereas Ebert's a little more a little more reserved and analytical and a little bit easier to listen to. Mm. Ridley Scott does good commentary. It's a it's a it's a rare gift, you know. I, I in preparation for uh, the Godfather year, I I rewatched the Godfather, obviously, but I decided I'd seen it so many times that I was going to finally sit down and listen to Coppola's um, uh, commentary on it, and it was actually surprisingly good. I don't know why I was surprised because he's obviously a really smart guy. But a lot of times, um, directors talking about their own stuff, it's not very interesting. Soderbergh does it really well. Um, but a lot of directors seem to, uh, they're not as interesting of communicators as they are of filmmakers. I guess if they were, they would be speechwriters and not filmmakers. But um, it's, uh, I don't know why I brought that up since we're not even talking about that movie. No, like, we're, like talking, that. we're talking about, it's a good, it's a valid subject. Uh, Oliver Stone is really good at commentary and Fincher's really good. I was going to. I would have watched. I'm glad we're going to be postponing the 1974 Oscar chat because I wanted to watch Chinatown to hear Fincher's commentary on Chinatown. I know, and I couldn't find it any place. I know I've got it around here someplace, but I can't find it. Thanks for putting me in a good mood. I didn't think I would be able to be in a good mood or say anything, but you guys did it again. You really brought me out of my shell again. I had a feeling because you'd said before that that has happened where you were in a shitty mood, and then the podcast cheered you up. So I kind of thought that maybe that would happen. Thanks. I appreciate it. That's good. I'm glad. That's one good thing then. Um, <clears throat> it is pretty, pretty dark days to, you know, I just had to like shut Twitter for a while because every time I turned it on, there would be more death stuff about Ebert and it was so sad. Mm. I just felt continuously sad about it. And even now, you know, I feel a little tiny bit of trauma every time I open up Twitter. It's like, what now? You know, what's going to be on there now? Twitter's mm. like that. It delivers this news, this dramatic news in such a casual way, you know, uh, and every time it seems like every time you turn it on, there's 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 some other piece of dramatic news. So I'm always afraid to look. <laughs> I know someone tweeted to us. I think like minutes after the after the Sun Times made the announcement, someone tweeted to both of us in a combined tweet asking for our our reaction. You know, I just yeah. couldn't do it. I had to go sit down and just you know close my eyes and think. I couldn't even face it, face the reality. I know it's a big one. Losing Ebert is a big one, but God, I was thinking as we were starting this podcast, how many people have died? Uh, you know, both Siskel and Ebert dead from cancer. You know, mm. Nora Ephron dead. It's just. And Pauline Kale, who spent her last years with Parkinson's, and she was uh, unable to to focus and concentrate for the last five or ten years of her life, and and stopped even watching movies. See, that's sad. Ebert, at least, was chugging along right up to the end. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. some solace in that. He still had all of his faculties, and as Chaz said, he died with a smile on his face, and he he still has a review in the can of a movie that hasn't even come out yet. So mm-hmm. he, he, he used every minute that he had. He or really was able did. To. And he had two things that you really need in life and that um, we're all three working towards. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one great love in your life to be there to the end and um, to be spending your days doing exactly what you love to do. And yeah. uh, he had those two things. And, you know, in a way, what more could you ask for? I would love to have seen him get 
10 more years at least out of life. 70 seems a decent enough time to be here, but not long enough for Eber. He could have he used more time. But to have had such a great life and to have met Chaz and to be, have been so in love with her um, and to wake up every day knowing that people just hang on every word he writes, you know, that's that's got to be some comfort. You know, when I think of death and I just get so panicky and scared about it, which I do every single day that I wake up now, um, I think that there really there you know few things that can console you in those times, and one of them is to leave stuff behind for people. You know, to leave the world not just a better place because that's so cliche. You know, because there's a lot of ways you can leave the world a better place. Just dying leaves the world a better place. <laughs> <laughs> Taking one more person out leaves a But, you know. Um, I can think of easily a dozen people without even trying that that's definitely the case. If they would just, right. they would just, die, just die, I would be happier. Right. But, I mean, look at the canon he left behind and look at all the people he's influenced. I mean, that's got to mean a lot. And I think if you could just do that, if you can just find a way to do that with your life, you, you would be consoled in those moments of, oh, my God, here it comes. Here comes the good night. And the cherry on the Sunday, he had he won the caption of caption a cartoon contest in the New Yorker after years and years and years and years of trying. Yeah, he finally, he finally which really had meant one. so much to him. You could tell it really meant yeah. a lot to him because he kept trying because he was so proud of it when it finally happened. His were so good. You can keep yeah. the Pulitzer assholes. I got the New Yorker cartoon contest. Yeah, but you know he also won the Pulitzer. It's worth saying he got yeah. that. That's what I just said. The synapse over there. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant get the Pulitzer. I got this, but yeah. No, he was having, his. His were all really funny and really good. And he was so pleased with them, even the ones that didn't make it. <laughs> they were great. They were just dirty. They were too dirty for the New Yorker a lot. Of <laughs> 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 oh, he was a good dude. He was a good dude. It's hard to say goodbye to someone like that. Yeah. To know that there'll never be another, you know, thing by Roger Ebert ever again. Any kind of piece of writing. <sighs> Tough. And yet we can wake up in the morning knowing that there'll be at least 10 things from Jeff Wells. Yay! <laughs> Life is good. We can wake up, too, knowing that there's all kinds of things that he wrote that I, that I haven't read yet. There are, there, there are hundreds of, review, of reviews that I haven't read that he wrote, and there, and there are lots of things on his blog that I'm going to go explore now that I never had time to do before, but I have years to do now. I have, I have all kinds of time to do. Right. I'm going to reread his review of Cloud Atlas when we were talking about movies that aren't perfect. And I was thinking that movies don't have to be perfect. They can still be awesome. And that was the one movie in the last year that came up that I can say that I saw where I could maybe identify flaws with it. And I can sort of understand what didn't work for people. But at the same time, it was a movie where I thought that filmmakers deserved a lot of credit for what they did achieve and they deserved a lot more of the benefit of the doubt than they got. And I was pleased to look at Ebert's review and realize that he gave it four stars. He saw it. He understood. Yeah. I know. I was really amazed by that too. He got it, you know, when so many others didn't get it. When it was the cool thing to take a big shit on it. Yeah, he got why. I mean, he would, of course, because he would be the few few of them that would even care or notice that it was a it was a um, an array of different you know uh, cultural backgrounds and people of color. You know, the only movie like that. 
he would notice that. He's one of those people that has an eye on stuff like that. Um, plus, he has imagination. He's a sci-fi fan. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing I loved about him is he just he had no ego that way. You know, like he didn't have to protect some like veneer of cool. He didn't need that. He didn't care. He was beyond that. Yet he could talk to somebody about Bergman with the best of them, you know, yeah. at the same time. Yeah, there's two scores of 100 for Cloud Alice. One is Salon's Andrew O'Hare, who I think is a great writer. That Actually, Ryan, you turned me on to him. I didn't even know who he was before you came mm-hmm. along. And Ebert. Those are the only two. I like that something about the way that Ebert would time the release of his reviews every week. He was always one of the last critics to come out with his review. And for some reason, maybe it's because of this or maybe it's just because IMD gives him this this um, special uh, privilege or prominence. But when you go to the reviews for any movie on IMDb, Ebert's at the very top of the list. There might be 50 or 70 reviews. Ebert is always at the top. He's always at the top of the page. Mm. Mm. So people who don't know anything about people who are 12 years old now, when they start uh, exploring movies in three or four years, they'll, they'll discover Ebert really easily. Hmm. So that's good to know. I need to be writing a lot more. Yeah. I need to uh, stop slacking and stop being in hibernation and just start writing. I need to find a lifetime, a love like Chaz. <laughs> I've already given up on that. I'd be happy just being a good writer. <laughs> Either or. He had both. Lucky yeah. him, you know. Uh, I love looking at his Metacritic's reviews that he wrote, you know, that where he, you know, we, we make fun of him for those scores of 100. But looking back, you know, he looks better than the other people do for those. You know, 100 for The Departed. Mm-hmm. You know, and it had a Metacritic score of 86. He gave it 100. 100 for Diving Bell and Butterfly, you know. 100 for Children of Men. Um, I just feel like on some level he got things that other people didn't. And he had a better... Um, then, of course, he gave Knowing four stars. <laughs> That's a terrible <laughs> movie. Did you ever see that? Who knows? Maybe Knowing will be on the sight and sound list in 20 years. <laughs> What the hell is knowing? No, it's terrible. <laughs> it's one of the worst movies ever made. Have you seen it, Ryan? It's... Yes, I have. Oh, uh-huh. it's, what, it's what is uh, it? Nick Nick Cage, isn't it? Nicholas Cage. I think so. The one about the rabbits and all. <laughs> yeah, it's like he's having visions of the future, and he's oh. about he's some kind of um, he he sees um, meaning in a series of numbers or something. I can't remember exactly. It's a it's a it's a it's a pot boiler. It's terrible. I think I must have filed that one away with all the other dozens of Nick Cage pot boilers that come out every year. And I say that as somebody who loves Nick Cage. I love watching him overact, but Jesus. Yeah. Dude needs a different agent. No, it was like it's like, you know, this is a this is this is a doll sent from the future to teach us how to be better people or something like that or to oh, save that's right. That's humanity. what it is. But you know, I'm seeing now and I remember now why why Ebert liked knowing because he liked Dark City so much and it's the same director. Ah. Same director as Dark City that Ebert just raved and raved about. So that he did have some favorite directors that he championed oh, that sure. nobody really understood yet. Yeah, and he was loyal. I think yeah. that that that's definitely what endeared him to a lot of people. Like he was really loved Gwyneth Paltrow, for instance. I mean, he had these strange crushes on actresses. Tilda. 
killed I identify with that. Gwyneth mm-hmm. and Angelina Jolie, you know, he really dug her. She, he was one of the reasons that she became a huge star with Ebert. It's hard to remember that far back. I mean, you have to be as old as me, you know, <laughs> but <laughs> I remember that he did. Yeah, so there's some funny, like, rendition he gave 100 to. Um, that was another one, though, where he, that was, uh, or no, I was thinking of Redacted. Who did rendition? I think that's, you know, um, Reese Witherspoon and okay. Jake Gyllenhaal. And, and, uh, Who, who's the director? Was it Redford? It didn't I think it's Robert Redford. Redford directed? Yeah. When you said rendition, I thought of Redacted, and I thought, well, he likes De Palma, so that, that's why. No, right. it was a totally I'm different wrong. movie, totally different director. But if there was anybody that would have gotten Redacted, it would have been Ebert. Right. Um, you know. It looks like Gavin Hood directed Rendition, so I'm wrong about Redford. Mm. Red, Redford did do one of those movies, though, didn't he? Yeah, maybe he did Redacted. I don't know. <laughs> no, he gave Lakeview Terrace. <laughs> Lake Redford Terrace. Redacted. Oprah Uma. <laughs> no, he did something bad with a lion, and Lions for Lambs or something. Yeah, that was terrible. Nobody saw uh-huh. it. Yeah. I mean, there's just some movies on here you just you can't believe that he gave four stars to, but look, I mean... I look at that list and I just go, wow, you know, he totally got it when nobody else did. That's what I think when I see it. The Cell is one. <laughs> Sorry. He had a well, it was interesting that he liked The Cell because that director, I believe that director has great things ahead of him. He did like sci-fi, yeah. He did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He sure did. But like The Accidental Tourist, that's a really good movie. He gave that 100 and it only got a Metacritic score of 53 and it's a really good movie. I go back to that, watch it. The Crying Game, he loved that. He was a huge um, advocate of that movie. It um, always surprises me to hear people hating on The Accidental Tourist. I guess I sort of see it's easy for snobs to hate on it, but I've always really, that one has always really meant a lot to me. Me too. At the Joy Luck Club, he gave 100 to. Um, nobody would have, nobody else would have really gotten that movie except him, and that's because, you know. Um, who cares about a bunch of Asian dames? Right, but he had, and one of his like long-term girlfriends was Asian, and that's his stepdaughter. Like, I think they're, uh-huh. you know, Chinese, Japanese, one of those. <laughs> 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 Sorry. Oh god! But you know, he championed like Justin Lin, who directed Better Luck Tomorrow. You know, I mean, he was just a he was a good guy, loyal, dependable. Um, not perfect, flawed, but, you know, flawed, you know. I had some issues with parts of his personality. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, but, he was no Andrew Saris and no Pauline Kale, but he didn't no, really try to be. He didn't. But you should, Vanity Fair, right? Because Miranair directed that. He gave that 100. Everybody else trashed it completely. Uh, it's great to go back and look at his scores of 100, especially the ones that got really bad um, reviews, the ones that are, you know. The consensus opinion was bad, but he was the only one who could see that it had merit. Yeah. Right, yeah. He championed Halle Berry in Monstrous Ball, was a huge, one of the biggest reasons why she won that Oscar, you know. Uh, His influence in the Oscars, on the Oscars, is not something that we touched on very much, but it was enormous. It was immense, his, his influence on the Oscars, I think. Oh, yeah. The one critic where you could say that that was the case, probably, huh? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the New York, the New York Times, and Kenneth Turan, those guys too. But um, but Ebert more consistently, I would say. Than, than he seemed to be more in touch with the Academy taste than those guys. 
Yeah. I also just like how kind of fearless his thinking is. Like he loved Across the Universe, that weird musical. Mm-hmm. I gave that a hundred, you know. There was a lot to like about that movie. It wasn't, you know, you, you, there's plenty in there and wrong with it if you want to find room for it. But there was there was a lot of really cool stuff in it, too. Yeah. Oh, well, now that he's totally left us, you know, we can fully appreciate him, um, you know, and all that he contributed, especially these, these crazy scores of 100 for movies that nobody would ever have expected. At the time, they seemed weird, but now they seem kind of great. I'm repeating myself. I think it's time for me to go to bed. <laughs> All right, go to bed, guys. I'm like a broken record. Good night, you guys. Glad you cheered up, Ryan. Thanks. Appreciate me too. it. Really. really glad. Really glad. I guess I'll talk to you guys tomorrow. Good night. Okay everybody. then. Okay. Good night. Bye. You've been listening to episode 25 of Oscar Podcast, a special tribute to Roger Ebert, such as it was. Um, we'll be back next week um, continuing to talk about the Oscars. And I was here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me from awardsdaily.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music was I'll Be Seeing You, Billie Holiday. And we started with Pictures of You, uh, the Cure cover by Class Actress. Thanks for listening. <laughs>